I was going to move move straight move straight into what I what I feel like the Lord uh, would have me to share this morning, um, because I, I was just telling Tessa I've just got a lot of good stuff to say, and and it's stuff that um, it's not like stuff that. Like is coming from me, but it's stuff that's coming from from the scriptures. Like there's a lot of good stuff in the scriptures that I just that are like really um, excited. I think like to, just to share, to speak, and to declare into in, in our church and in our city city this morning. So yeah, Lord, um, we are, are desperate for your words of truth and your life in in our in our lives, God. Um, so I, I pray, Lord, that as I as I speak uh, speak out your scriptures and uh, and the things that you've shown to me, Lord, that um, th- that that would be your words actually spreading spreading out in in our church, but even like this, like almost like a declaration in our in our city and in our nation, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray that even this morning that you'd uh, help us to have open minds and open ears to what you're saying. Mm. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I just I just encourage you um, just to like just even consciously go, Lord. I'm op- I'm opening myself up to what you want to speak to me today, to the words of God today. Remember what we sang before: you don't have to come, but you always do. And we might have stopped singing that song, but Jesus didn't like walk out walk out the door. He's still here. He's still walking in this room. I believe that he's still whispering his words into our ears. So let it come. The um, when I was praying uh, this morning, uh, the I was just reminded of um, the the Father Sunday that Andrea's uh, hosting, putting on here called Level Up, and it's that word like level up, which has been really resonating to me because um, you know today actually we leveled down. We went from being at level two in terms of the COVID response to being level one. But I really believe that God is calling us to to level up. It's not just for fathers and sons, but for all of us. He's in this season. He's like, he's going, okay, will you take that step um, of faith towards me? Will you lay down that thing that you're holding on to and walk towards me and discover life in him? And so I feel like today there's, there's something for us all to hold on to. They're like, level, level up, level up and press into it. Uh, so in the last um, few weeks, oh, thank you, Sam. I actually forgot that I had that. For a second, but now we're back on track. So, last few weeks we've been uh, exploring this theme of the bride, the bride and the groom, and I began um, talking about it um, four weeks ago. Uh, what's today? Seventh of March, the seventh of Feb, actually, talking about the bride and the groom, and how the Lord is preparing the bride for His Son, for Jesus, for the High King of Heaven, Jesus, and the bride is us. Funnily enough, like look around. Look around, we don't have uh, you know, a wedding dress on or anything, but we are the bride for the high king of heaven, the perfect son of God, the people of God, that's us. We are being made ready and prepared for the day when Jesus returns in the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his splendor and his power. And then there's going to be this wedding day that, to end all wedding days. So you might have been to a wedding and it might have been awesome, but this wedding day that's to come is just going to put all of those uh, as though they were nothing. Like this is going to be the wedding day that nothing compares to. The church and Jesus coming together. 
And then uh, and we, we, kind of like, we spoke from Revelation, Revelation, uh, this vision that John had, and, and he, hears, he hears this massive chorus crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Oops, I just want to read it straight from, straight from my Bible here. You've all got your Bibles here, eh? You heard Zoe talking a few weeks ago? Yeah. So pull out your Bibles. Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read this whole thing actually from verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fight for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Right this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I, I, a few weeks ago when I was sort of introducing this, I'm going to cover it again because some of you might have forgotten or you weren't here. It's part of a vision that John, John the Revelator, it might have been the Apostle John, it might have been a different John, he had about 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this book, the last book in the New Testament, not last book in the Bible, called Revelation. It's the description of his incredible vision that he has uh, of, um, of the present and future reality from heaven's perspective. It's almost like he's been given a, given a God's eye view of what, what was going on 2,000 years ago, what is going on today, and also what's going to happen in the future. Um, in the Greek, uh, the Greek word is like apocalypto, apocalypse, literally like unveiling unveiling of, of what's going on. He's seeing it from a different, a different dimension. John, he'd been ex, ex, exiled. Susan, exiled, exiled, exiled to the island of Patmos. Um, and it's not, it wasn't like this, this uh, paradise island that you go and lay, lay on the beach and drink um, you know, yummy margaritas or whatever you're into. He, he's exiled there. It's a prison island. He's sent there against his will. He's unable to return home. And the reason why he's sent there is because the Christians were coming under intense persecution, intense suffering, um, tribulation, anti-Christian persecution. That's the reason why he's there, against his will. And he writes this. So we're going from uh, the end of Revelation, now we're at the beginning, chapter 1, and he writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and, and the kingdom... And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to, to Laodicea, and to Capital Vineyard Church in Wellington, New Zealand in 2000 years time. And he, and he did, right? He wrote it, he wrote it down. And we say so we read these words 2,000 years later. We read the words that he wrote down. He was obedient, and he wrote them down. The early, those early Christians, they were under such intense persecution, and it was because of their belief and the proclamation of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. John here, he says, he's on Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is like a really nice way of saying, because I'm a Christian, they sent me to this island. Persecution. The testimony of Jesus is what 
the testimony of Jesus is what the Bible teaches about Jesus. It's what the Gospels say about Jesus. That he is the Son of God. That he is the great Messiah, this person that the Jewish people had been waiting hundreds of hundreds of years for. That he did indeed heal people of sicknesses and disease. That he set people free from demons. That he calmed storms. We calm storms of the word, you know. He just speaks peace to the storms and they're calm. That he, that he did actually take some water and he did turn it into wine. This is the testimony of Jesus, right? And, um, and more. He did way more than that. And he did it because he had authority from God. The testimony of Jesus is that he died, he taking on he died taking on the sins of the world. He took on my sins, he took on your sins, he took on all the sins of people, everybody that turns to him and uh, and, and seeks him. He took on our sins. More than that, he rose again from the grave. He rose again from the grave, resurrected, physically resurrected, blood and uh, blood and flesh and bone and brain and and every other part that he had. Right, resurrected. And then what? After his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is right now, ruling and reigning. And more, Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to put an end to evil once and for all. He's going to judge evil once and for all. This is just a quick summary. I was like, well, I've got to summarize the testimony of Jesus, right? And this is the testimony that resulted in John being sent to this island of Patmos. Later in, later in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, Jesus, uh, John says that the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. So I've just prophesied. I've just prophesied to this this morning. I've prophesied it. Yeah. Believing and proclaiming this testimony at that time was leading to intense persecution and suffering. And John, at the beginning here, he goes, I'm your brother, I'm your partner. He's the brother and the partner in the tribulation that's happening. Tribulation, another, another big word. It means bad times, bad times, testing times. Um, I looked it up, distress or suffering resulting from oppression or persecution. This is what they were, this is what they were facing under massive attack. And we know from history, uh, from reading uh, his, uh, accounts in history, that many Christians were martyred. At this time, they were murdered for their faith and in just the most horrendous and horrific ways. Horrific, sadistic. You might have heard of the Roman Emperor Nero. He initiated this unbelievably horrible campaign against Christians. It's said that he even set Christians on fire. He made torches of Christians. And that he, that he may have even commanded the, the murder of, of Paul and Peter. Right, this is what's happening. This is what's happening when, when John writes this book of Revelation. This moment in history, an intense moment in history. And John, this exiled, exiled man, receives an incredible revelation that's, that continues to speak to us today. At the beginning of the hour, I spoke from um, Psalm, Psalm 23, and it has that line, You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Like we want to eat from the feast of God, but we don't want to be in the presence of our enemies. And yet, you've got this book of Revelation. John receives this revelation from God in the presence of his, of his enemies. And you kind of think, what would you rather? Would you rather be John, be exiled to this island of Patmos and receive a vision like this in Revelation? Or would you rather not? 
Would you rather not? What is it going to take? That's a complete side note. You might want to think about it or you might just want to uh, not. John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is what day? Sunday. Sunday, the first day of the week. The Lord's day is Sunday. Um, Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And early Christians, Sunday became this day of celebration, a declaration of what we believe, that Jesus died for the sins of the world. But because he is more powerful than death, he was resurrected on Sunday. It became the, they called it the Lord's Day. And I remember it being called the Lord's Day when I was growing up. Growing up, Christians used to call it the Lord's Day. And I kind of want to bring it back. I kind of want to bring it back. And um, I, uh, where am I up to? Um, in Spanish, Sunday, the word for Sunday is um, domingo which is literally the Lord's Day. So in Spanish, they still call it the Lord's Day. We call it Sunday um, because of some pagan thing of worshipping the sun. I want to call it the Lord's Day. Anyway, <laughs> it just uh, it excites me. It was, a day, it was a day to gather. It was a day to come together and to celebrate. It was a day to focus on Jesus, what he has done, what he will do. This is what the early Christians did. And even though John was ex- exiled to Patmos, man, I just shouldn't have put that word in my notes so much because I find it hard to say this morning. Even though he was sent to Patmos against his will and he could no longer freely gather and worship Jesus with other Christians, he continued to trust and hope in the Lord. And he somehow was able to even set aside this day of the week. He calls it the Lord's Day. Somehow he was even able to set that day aside. He continued then. He continued then to trust in God even though... It looks like everything is going, going downhill, right? His brothers and his, and his, uh, and his friends were being um, persecuted and martyred. Even though all this is happening, he still trusts in God. He still sets aside the Lord's day. Trusts in God's overall plan. So much so that even when he's in this like, horrible situation, he believes that the Lord is still in charge. And uh, I was sort of thinking about it like the setting, for him setting aside this day and going, this is the Lord's day. It's like this act of defiance. It's like going, it's saying to the principalities and the powers or the prison guards and even the other prisoners and and the people that sent him there, that even though I'm exiled, even though I'm not free, even though my brothers and sisters are being martyred for their faith in Jesus, I still believe that Jesus rose from the grave, that he is still in charge, that he's still king of the earth, that he's still going to come one day and he's going to put all things, put all things right. That God is still in control. It's, it's a simple thing, isn't it? Like setting aside a day. And yet, yet for John, I believe that it was like a prophetic action. And then like, there's this phrase, he goes, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And like, what do you think this means? It's a phrase that Paul also uses. Uh, an example comes from Ephesians 6 when, when Paul says, pray in the spirit. And we read it quite a few times in the New Testament, to be in the spirit. And we might kind of imagine that means like a kind of like a, I don't know, getting into a real sort of like transcendent state, like getting all oh, shaky and, and buzzy, you know, getting, um, getting all worked up. Um, maybe it means that. <laughs> I don't know. But my guess is that John, in this day, somehow, somehow, that he was setting his attention on the Lord, 
that he was believing in faith that God was with him, that he was uh, believing uh, and abiding in God on this day, believing that he was in the spirit, even though maybe he couldn't feel anything, trusting that he's in the spirit. Perhaps he was praying. I reckon he was praying. Maybe he was able to find ways of being still. Maybe he was listening, waiting. Perhaps he was remembering all the things that he knew of Jesus, bringing those to mind. Perhaps he was even like worshiping. We know uh, in, the gospel, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts that when um, some of the followers of Jesus were uh, arrested and put into prison that they worshiped God and the prison walls sort of were shaken and they were set free because of God. Perhaps he was praising God. Perhaps he was worshiping like that. Perhaps he was experiencing something. Perhaps he wasn't. Even though he was exiled, even though he's there for being a Christian, he continued doing, I think, what he'd always done. He used to be free to gather with other Christians, as we are. Now he couldn't. And he continues making this day the Lord's day. And it's uh, like this word that I want to um, get into is actually the word gather. Even though he couldn't gather with other Christians, he, he continued doing it. But it's this word gather I want to pick up on. Because uh, sometimes we've got to think about it when we, you know, we, we gathered here this morning. Why? Why do we do it? Uh, I spent a lot of my week uh, preparing for Sunday mornings, you know, pulling things together. Why? What's the point? What's the point of doing this thing on Sunday morning? Well, I could be sleeping in, sleeping in. It's, it's fun. <laughs> I could be having a late brunch on a Sunday morning. I could be hanging out with my friends and family. Why prioritize gathering as a church? Why? And this morning, I really want to encourage all of us today. It's a bit like preaching to the choir because you're here. <laughs> but I really want to encourage us and inspire us. And, to like, and I'm hoping that God would actually place a vision in our hearts so that we actually see and we recognize the importance and, of, of, and the priority that we should place on actually gathering. Holy Spirit, would you breathe on us this morning? Would you breathe on us this morning? Would you inspire us once again? To set aside Sunday as the Lord's Day and to capture, Lord, your vision for the church. And Lord, that that vision would be so powerful that, uh, that when even other things catch our eye or catch our attention, that we're able to go, no, not today. You, Lord, you are our focus today. And I say amen, because that's what I want. Like gather means, gather means um, it's coming, to, coming together. You know, the word together comes from the word gather. The people of God have practiced over the years, over hundreds, thousands of years, the people of God have practiced faith in all kinds of ways, but there's been at least one defining feature. It's that people of God have come together. They've gathered. That's that's probably one of the few remaining constants. People of God gather, we get together, and we do it for one reason. You know, at the beginning of the service, I asked you to yell out, you know, why? Why are we here? And most of you yelled out Jesus. He is, he is our focus. He is our center of gravity. At a, at a wedding, remember, we're talking about the bride and the groom. At a, at a wedding, there's two, there's two main people. <laughs> the bride and the groom, yeah? <laughs> the bride and the groom. They're the, they're the VIPs. They're, they're the people... That, um, that we're all there to see. And the bride and the groom, they only have eyes for each other. Uh, when, the, when the bride arrives and walks into the church and she sees the groom at the front, it's like, 
well, actually, I can't say from the bride's perspective, but this is what I kind of imagine, that, that everything else kind of like fades. I know what it's like from the groom's perspective. When I saw Tessa you know, walking down towards where we got married, and I saw you, and, and everything else sort of like faded into the background as I saw you. I saw Tessa. Yeah. <laughs> Getting a little bit emo. It, 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 <laughs> the bride and the groom are drawn, are drawn irresistibly towards each other. Yeah? Because they love each other. It's, this is not rocket science. It's not complicated. They love each other, so they're drawn to each other. And everything else fades into the background. And on, the, on, 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 the, on their wedding day, the bride and the groom come together. They unite their lives together in, a, just a, in an incredible way, entwined in a communion that's so profound that the Bible calls it becoming one flesh. At the wedding day, the bride and the groom, they gravitate towards each other. And I love, the, I love this idea. What we love, what we love, we gravitate towards. What we love, we go towards. I love coffee. <laughs> and in, in the morning, uh, I've set my alarm to go off at 6 a.m. Um, because I want to get up and I want to have some time alone with God. But then I wake up and... And my alarm goes off and I go, oh, I just don't want to get, I don't want to get out of bed. I want to stay in bed. My bed is comfy and I just want it, my eyes, they don't really want to open. I just want to stay in bed. But I love coffee. And so then I remember, I can get up and I can have a coffee. And so I then, I get out of bed and my eyes are still half closed. Don't talk to me at that time because I'm not going to um, make sense. My legs are stiff and sore because I'm, like time, I'm 43 <laughs> it's a hard life, eh? <laughs> and I'd stumble to the kitchen, and I'd turn the kettle on, and I'd make my coffee. And that is, seriously, that's my motivation for getting up in the morning. My spirit, in my spirit, I want to get up and spend time with God, but my flesh is weak. And so I, I exploit my flesh in order to get up and, and spend time with God. And I think that's all right. Use whatever it takes. <laughs> we gravitate towards what we love. And many of you also love coffee, and I know this because when I finish talking, which I'm sorry is not going to be in five minutes, but when I am, you are going to gravitate towards the coffee machine. And uh, Tirish and Yasmin, you guys are making coffee this morning. No pressure, but people are going to come towards you. <laughs> not because they like you, <laughs> but because they like what you're making. We do like we do we do like we do like you. We do like we go towards what we we go towards what we love. Okay, here's another aspect of that. So we all gravitate towards the coffee machine and then what happens? Without even knowing it, we're all going towards the coffee machine. Without even knowing it, all of a sudden you're surrounded by a bunch of people with the focus of coffee. Do you see where I'm getting at? The bride and the groom love each other, and they come towards each other. The bride is the church. The bride loves Jesus. The bride, the people of God all over the world, drawing close towards Jesus. And when this happens, something crazy happens. And the people of God gravitate towards Jesus. They just somehow uh, end up together in the same place. Their, their purpose is not together. Their purpose is Jesus. But gathering happens. 
all of a sudden you have a whole lot of people gathered with Jesus at the center. A whole lot of people that go, we want to we draw close to Jesus, we want to center our attention on Jesus, so we're going to get up in the morning, we're going to come down to level two, 147 Thorn and Key, we're going to come up the stairs or up the lift, if the lift is working, we're going to find our favorite seat and we're going to worship Jesus. And then we're going to have coffee because we love coffee. Right? <laughs> we long to be close to him. We long to hear his voice. Perhaps we might even feel his touch. Perhaps we might even see him. Me and Elena have been praying this recently. Because she, she says, you can't see Jesus. And, uh, and I said, do you want to see Jesus? And she said, yes. I said, well, should we ask him? And so we've been asking, can we see Jesus? Haven't yet. But we have, you know, all of us, we have the same goal, the same focus, the same love, the same desire. That when we come together, we're going to meet with Jesus. So we come back to this passage in Revelation 1. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, or eight if you include us, right? And the Greek word translated as church in the New Testament and including in Revelation is this word, ecclesia. Ecclesia. It means assembly or congregation. An ecclesia is a gathering, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. It's an assembly. Right now we are ecclesiating. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. It's not accurate. We are, we are coming together. We are being the ecclesia. Um, here's a, this is from a book called Faith Seeking Understanding. Um, by a guy called Daniel um, Miglio. He writes, In the New Testament, the church refers to the new community of believers, believers gathered to praise and serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the gospel of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or another way, another way of thinking about that is it's we, the community, the church is a community of believers gathered right, with Jesus at the center based on the testimony of Jesus, of who Jesus is. And you read in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, um, the description, descriptions of the people of God, the church. There are many different biblical pictures. A household or a family. A people. A priesthood. A temple. A vine. An olive tree. A flock of sheep. <laughs> a, a body made of different parts. And there's others. And all these pictures illustrate individuals being together. They're, they're plural, you know, a, a family um, ideally has a, a father, the mother, the you know, sister, brother, baby, and they're all in the same house, a flock of sheep, <laughs> all these sheep eating from the same pasture. At its simplest, the church is a gathering of people centered around Jesus. God designed us to be together. God actually made us this way. I can't remember what I've got on the next slide, but. Let's have a look. God designed us. He made us to be together. Right back at the beginning of the Bible story, it says in Genesis uh, that God created, created, created Adam, and God says it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Don't you think that's quite remarkable? Yeah. It wasn't good for, Adam, for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then God takes part of Adam. If you've read Genesis, you know this story. takes a part of him, takes a rib of all things, takes a rib. And from this rib, God creates Eve. And Adam is so stoked. Man, he's stoked. He goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
Even the first Adam, you know, first person Adam, he was not meant to be alone. He was not to, he had to be in company with other people. He had to be with other people. He had to be in family. Uh, I wonder if Adam, um, um, before his rib was taken out, was a bit like a two-in-one kind of person. He, he, he contained within him all of humanity. He even contained within him Eve. Eve was part of him. And then God took that part to make two individuals separate but interdependent on each other. And so uh, this first married couple, right, flesh, becoming one flesh, separate but becoming one flesh. We, we are all created in God's image, and God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's like the community of God, the trinity of God. And like God, we have to be in community, have to be gathering with other people. Like God, we are created to be with each other. The perfect relationship that Adam and Eve, I know I'm speaking fast just because I got, I, got, I got a few pages to go. So I'm going fast. It's a bit like a Grand Prix. The perfect relationship that Adam and Eve had was broken at the same time as their perfect harmony with God was broken when they rebelled against him. They were in unity in their rebellion against God. They both disobeyed God. They both ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But immediately the consequence of that was disunity. Disunity, the inevitable consequence of their sin. God says to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Contrary means you're going to disagree. You're going to fight. You're going to argue. You're going to have contrary desires. These two individuals, the first married couple, they had it all. And they were united in it. They were together in it. Now there's disunity. Okay, I'm going to move on to a slightly different track for a second. And then it's going to all come back, hopefully. If there's one word that, that describes our culture, it's, uh, in my mind, it's individualism. Individualism. Individualism is um, about being independent. And it's about being self-reliant. And that is what we kind of go, that is what we want to be. We want to be independent. We want to be self-reliant. Individualism can, can be a way to deal with disagreement with others and disunity with others. Rather than finding ways to reconnect, individualism tells us don't even bother. We don't need other people. We are independent. We are self-reliant. And it's, and it's a problem. We see it all the time. Uh, we experience it all the time. It's a problem in marriages and in our society, in marriages, I think especially, because individualism speaks this, speaks out, whispers in our ears that our needs are more important than the other, other person's needs. It encourages us to be self-reliant. It encourages us to disengage from others, especially when you know, conflict comes up, disagreement comes up. And it's like no wonder that in our, in our culture, um, in Western society, maybe I'm not sure what it's like in other, other cultures, but we, um, we become lonely, right? We become lonely as we kind of like separate ourselves from other. We become starved for company, companionship, and community. And we, we want it, but we're not willing to do what it takes to get it, you know? We suffer. We suffer mentally and emotionally uh, when we are isolated from others. Solitary, solitary confinement is a form of torture. We're not meant to be alone. And individualism does, does not work with and harmon, all right. It does not harmonize with the church. Does not fit. We try to fit it. It's not going to fit because it says uh, individualism says I don't need anyone anyone else. I'm independent. I'm self reliant. And God says, 
God says, I created you to be with other people. I created you to be interdependent and to actually need others. Individualism is all about our terms and our desires and our needs and our wants. Whereas a Jesus-centered community like Capital Vineyard Church, it's about God's terms and ideally it's about the needs of others and trying to, um, trying to meet the needs of others, help other people out. Inter- interdependence rather than independence. Like, to put it frankly, I need you. <laughs> Not for my own self-esteem. Goodness me. I need you in other, in other ways. You can like turn to the person next to you and go, I, I need you. I need you. <laughs> I need you. <laughs> Hebrews. Oh, that's my next passage. Are you going right? Just like, yeah, okay. Can I, can, can I speak for a bit longer? Thanks, Rob and Susan. <laughs> Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, you might be familiar with this passage. It's a massive encouragement and instruction. And, um, and it says, Therefore, brothers, and in some translations we'll say, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right? All coming in through the same way, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Thanks for that word that you had, Taylor. You know, the Holy Spirit washing our feet. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Drawing close, like in this passage, drawing close to the one we love, we gravitate towards Jesus and it necessarily results in gathering, meeting together. We go towards the one we love. If we're going towards the one we love, then other people who are also going to the one we love, we're going to end up in the same space as them. Together, he says, the writer says, together, encouraging one another, stirring one another up. This is what, this is what church is all about. I encourage you. You encourage me. Stir one another up. And I've seen, frankly, I've just seen it. I've said that word too many times, frankly. I don't know where Frank came from. Sorry, Frank. I've seen it so many times. People that I've gone to church with, and then little by little, they stop, they stop assembling. They stop coming, coming regularly. And just other things come up. Other things come up. And before long, my friends, they've become out of the habit of coming together. And I remember a, um, a conversation with, that I had with an old friend a year or two ago. He lives in another city. And I asked him, like, what, what, church, are you, what church are you going to now? And he goes, he told me how he sometimes goes along to one, but he doesn't really know where he's at with God anymore. And it's like this thing, we've got to be together. It's like our own our faith, our own faith actually depends on it. That's why I'm saying we need each other. You know, um, uh, one of the descriptions of the church is a flock of sheep. And sheep are really funny. They just, like, they just follow each other. And uh, I think it was over summer... Um, we were staying near a, a sheep farm, and I watched this uh, flock of sheep. And there was, like, um, some of them, um, this flock of sheep. They, the bunch of them, kind of decided they were going to go over the hill. 
And there was another another sheep, and it was distracted just by eating a good bit of grass. I guess he found a good spot. He or she found a good spot, and so didn't notice that all the other sheep had kind of left. And then when the when that sheep noticed all the other left, they kind of like you know scurried to catch up to the others because because they need each other. Um, sheep have a tendency to stick together, and they do it for protection from predators. <laughs> I learned this in biology. It's protection from predators. Same for schools of fish and so many others. There's like this, the strength in the herd, like being together protects us actually. And I don't think we like to hear this because again, like this individualism thing, we want to be independent. We don't want to think that our faith might actually depend on other people. But this is, I think this is true. We need encouragement of others. Uh, I, I grew up... Um, and our family, we would go to church every Sunday. It was just was that thing. Every Sunday we'd go to church. Um, Mum and Dad, they, they valued and they prioritized being at church on the Lord's Day. And uh, one day I left home and I went to study, study in Christchurch. And I, and I just continued. It was just like this, this habit for me of going to church every Sunday. It didn't really matter what was kind of going on during the week. I drifted. Um, in many different ways, but I always ended up at church on Sunday. And I, like, I just want to say, like, shout out to Christchurch City Elam and uh, Grace Vineyard because I'm I'm really not sure if my faith would have survived if I hadn't. Um, out of routine, as bad as that sa- as bad as that sounds, out of routine and discipline, gone along to church each Sunday. I'm not sure if my faith would have survived. It's almost like the faith and the hope and the trust of others somehow protected me. It was like a shelter for me. <laughs> it was also in these churches that I was encouraged to step up and lead it in, diff- lead in different ways. I was, playing, I was playing bass, and then someone said, do you want a worship leader? I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm the bass player. I'm not the worship leader. But it was in, the, in that gathering. We're getting, we're getting closer <laughs> to the end. Gathering in the name of Jesus, centering around him, united by him, it's gr- it becomes even greater than that, right? It's, it's greater than our own needs. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We sang it before. You don't have to come, but you always do. He's here in our midst. Um, and throughout, throughout, the psalm, throughout the Psalms, God promises blessing. Did I have this up on a slide? No. Goodness me. Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And we jump forward. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amazing things happen when people come together united, united by Jesus. We might have all kinds of disagreements, but if we go, we're here because of you, Jesus, because you're the king and we believe in who you are. God commands a blessing, life forevermore. And this beautiful, one of the best examples comes from the, the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. You might again know the story. 120 people gathered together in an upper room, praying, waiting, united by Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit falls upon them, flames of fire, giving them different languages to speak in. It's the life of the Spirit as they gathered Gathering as a church community, being centered around Jesus is not always easy. No, it's not always easy. It's often a battle every single Sunday, even in our family. Not, that, not when they were fighting, but things come up, difficulties come up. 
every Sunday. And there's a battle going on far greater than what we can see. There's a spiritual battle going on because the enemy doesn't want, doesn't want us coming together. The enemy doesn't want us to have life forevermore. The enemy wants us to have death and separation from God. He does not want, it to, want us to gather in unity. He does not want us to be blessed. And uh, like, um, we can look at other countries, other countries where there's like oppressive regimes, and often one of the first things that happens, especially you think of common, communist countries, one of the first things that happen is the state goes, no church, you cannot gather, you cannot get together. Read about, you can look at Open Doors website, you can read about what's like. And then even in, but even in these countries, the Lord, uh, the, the Lord blesses the church and churches go underground. They still gather. And often you read incredible testimonies of what the Holy Spirit is doing in those places. These people who are risking their own lives actually to come, come together. They kind, of, they kind of see it in ways that we sometimes don't. And in our country, we don't really face top-down we don't really face top-down attack and persecution on our gathering. I know lockdown happened. I know that we weren't able to gather. That wasn't persecution on the church, I don't believe. It was protection, right? We don't face a top-down attack or a persecution on our faith in that way, but we do face subtle attacks of the enemy. And it's often more at a personal level. So this is my, this is my prayer, is that we recover God's vision. Me too, for our coming together. And we, and we choose to see, okay, the whole Sunday morning then of coming together, it's an act of worship to you, God, choosing to sacrifice in our desires, to figure out how to get up early. Uh, you, you might be like me, you might go, I love coffee, and so I'm going to set my alarm a bit earlier to get my coffee so that I can get to church on time. We start at 10, by the way. <laughs> we finish a bit late, sorry. Choosing to sacrifice in our desires. You know, we, that's what I mean. Like, we'll do it if we think it's worth it, if we value it, you know. And it's like um, going to church, like for John, setting aside the day as the Lord's day, it was like this prophetic act, and it can be for us as well. A prophetic act, seeing this future coming together of the bride and the groom. And it speaks with actions, loud in the words, that the best that individualism has to offer is actually just... It's nothing compared to what life and God can be like. You know, Adam and Eve are in this perfect relationship and in unity with each other, dwelling in God in the Garden of Eden, until their rebellion caused this fatal wound in their relationship and in the relationships of all their offspring, including us. Even the closest person that you're with, you'll find that you've got disagreement with them. Even the person that you love the most, you'll find there's disagreement with them. In all of our relationships, we, we carry this, this, this wound Right, But there's good news, and it's Jesus, because Jesus comes. And in Jesus, he goes, here's my flesh, eat my flesh, and me, you're going to be united. He begins this work of restoration, of restoring relationships, that in the fullness of time, when he comes together, he says, the church and Jesus are going to come together, and it's going to be so much unity that it's going to be like one flesh. We won't be disagreement, disagreeing anymore. We won't be co- contrary to our husbands or our wives or anybody else. This is the hope of the church. When Jesus returns and the, and the bride is fully united, all the individuals that are in the church, men, women, boys and girls from all over the world and even across time are going to be united in Jesus in a way that we can only dream of. So dream. We need to dream. Ask God for his vision. Think beyond what you can see. 
I'm starting to see beyond what I can see. I can see you all. You are all awesome, and I'm so happy that you're here. But I can see beyond this. I can see beyond the gathering on the second floor of 147 Thorn and Key. And I can see more and more people gathering with Jesus at their center, blessing the city, releasing life in our city as we gather with Jesus at our center. And then dream, capture this vision, and gather and assemble an ecclesia. Our gathering prophetically declares that there will be a day to come that together we will be the people that John the the Revelator saw 2,000 years ago. And he described it as the holy city. And this is the passage I'm going to finish with. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with, with, with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Lord Jesus, thank you for John. Thank you for John that he was so obedient to you, Lord, that he, that he set aside the Lord's day. Lord, that he, that he was in the Spirit somehow bringing his attention and his life before you, that uh, he was obedient and he wrote these words down. I don't know what happened to him after this. We don't know if he was set free or whether he was murdered. We don't know. And yet, Lord, he was obedient to it, Lord. Let us take the words that you've spoken to us this morning. Let us chew on them. Let us discover your vision for the gathered people of God, for the church, whether it's this church or whether it's another gathering. Oops. Let your spirit come. Let your spirit come. Why don't you stand with me and we'll, um, we'll pray, pray together. Holy Spirit, you're calling us to, to level up almost to, to take another step. And that step, I think, involves letting go of things that, that actually we, we quite like. You keep calling us, Lord, and you keep saying, what's in you is better than, than, than what the world has to offer. So, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, even this morning, let your, let you, let your whispers come, let your breath come, even in this place, Lord, even for the people uh, watching at home, following at home. Lord, bless us. Help us to recover your vision, Lord, to see things as you see them, Lord Jesus.